we basically made the decision to say, well, let's solve a real customer problem. We know what our competitive advantages can be because we understand this technology space quite well. We understand AI quite well, but those are just tools. Those are just the how, like what's the why? And so um, we tried to approach it in the opposite way. And now when you look at the value of blockchain here, well, actually it helps establish that trust. It helps get people lower interest rates, which is what they actually need to be able to grow. It's a genuine problem that we're solving and it's just the best tool for the job. Today's guest is Annika Manari, the CEO and co-founder of Artos, a blockchain-powered B2B food and drink marketplace, helping to finance and boost the discoverability of smaller, sustainable and ethical brands. Why are we talking to Annika? Well, apart from that being a fantastic mission, she's also been ranked as one of Forbes 2021 30 under 30, having founded Artos in 2018. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, powered by the Harvey Nash Group, where we bring you interviews with leaders from across the industry and a little bit of technology news. It's Friday. We're recording Friday morning. This is going out as soon as I can get it edited. So thank you, Akish, for joining me. How are you? Looking forward to the weekend? I am looking forward to the weekend. Yeah, we were just talking. We're going to be seeing each other on Sunday. Um, We are. At the Oval. At the Oval. Um, over and immediately, cricket. most of our audience goes, what? Yeah. <laughs> Who's the Oval? Is that an event? Uh, but yeah, just just at the cricket. So we'll be seeing each other on Sunday. England versus India. Uh, a very interestingly poised series. For any of you who are not cricket fans, India, the, the best side in the world. Uh, England, um, the most unpredictable side in the world. Actually, no, that's not entirely true up until the last match. We haven't won, won one in eight. Yeah. So, uh, oh, we've got, got, got the world's best batsman playing for England at the moment. So Yeah, who who was, who was proclaimed the world's best batsman and then made his worst score <laughs> of the summer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Typical. But Joe Root has been in, in, in astonishingly good form this year. Hmm. Anyway, this this has nothing yeah, to do we with were, we, we, I, I thought I was back on my cricket podcast for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is a, an extended advert for, for yeah. Rikishi's cricket podcast. I mean, I know our like. guest is half Indian and half Italian. There but, we go, know, of yeah, course. There we go. There is a link. There we go. I, I had not thought of that. Well done, Akish. Yeah, if you like cricket and you like Akish, you you know you listen to Tech Talks regularly <laughs> and you think, he's a, you think he adds value to the show, go have a l- listen to... Big Swing No Ding. There we go. Uh, but yes, as he correctly says, um, our guest is half Indian. So all about India this weekend. Um, but here we go. It's all about sustainable food and blockchain. So we'll hand over to the interview with Annika and we'll be back afterwards. This morning we're talking to Annika, Annika Moneri, CEO and co-founder of Artos. How are you this morning? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for asking. Sun's out. Can't complain. Annika, where are you from originally? Uh, I'm half Indian, half Italian, but I grew up in many different countries. So I went to Imperial College, though. So from the age of 18, I've lived in London. So I guess given that today we're talking about the discoverability of, of kind of f- foods, smaller, sustainable and ethical brands around food, coming being someone who's, whose feet are in different cultures and different places growing up, you've probably got quite a I suppose a wide, well, I, I would imagine this might be the worst assumption in the world. You might, you might really be quite suspicious of food, but it'd be very odd if you're running the business that you are, if you were, but you, you probably have an appreciation of lots of different cultures when it comes to food. Yeah, indeed. Um, it's interesting as well, because you see 
these new food brands coming into the market that are trying to bring, I don't know, Indian chai to London or, you know, Italian sauces and stuff like that to America, you know, like very different and niche and more authentic food, people trying to do it right. So, yeah. And it does seem to be that they're, 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 every now and then there seems to be this kind of craze or this fad around a particular drink or food. I mean, at the minute, it seems to be that bubble tea, there's bubble tea places opening absolutely everywhere around town. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, bubble tea and, I mean, chai is kind of taking off as well. And you see this, you know, have you heard of uh, yerba mate before? No, I haven't, no. Ah, okay. Well, it's just like um, in South America, it's the, they have caffeine. All the footballers drink it, actually. Um, a bit bitter. It's like a root. Um, and they make like a tea out of it. And that's starting to hit the markets in America. We have a brand here that actually is selling it as well. And um, yeah, it's a bit of an energy drink. It's like kind of a substitute there, but super interesting and very, very traditional, let's say, fits with what you're saying. I have to keep an eye out for it. So... Um... Tell us more about Artos. Who are who who or what is Artos? Oh, yeah. So Artos is a platform for ethical food brands, food and drinks brands. Um, and what we do is we help them grow by allowing them to find and service the deals that they need. You know, the bigger deals that cost more to service that are harder to find that they have to pay high margins for. And what we do is we have something like if you think about Etsy and Tinder having a baby um, and then Google sponsoring that baby. Uh, that's kind of what we have with food and beverage brands. So, you know, we match these brands to buyers, whether they're cafes, restaurants, uh, you know, retail chains, etc. cetera. Um, and we try to provide them everything they need to do the deals they need so that they can really become that next Oatly or become that next BrewDog, for example. Okay. So, why obviously you're you're trying to fix the the discoverability piece why is it hard to find these smaller businesses and why why is blockchain the tool that you're using to help you do that well it's a good question um i think the best way is you know one of our sellers this is a true story so one of the brands we have on there you know he's doing five thousand pound an order a month mainly to bars and stuff like that he has this um no alcohol beer, which is taking off that category is growing quite fast. Mm-hmm. It's an offer through a distributor for a deal um, with a massive American retail chain. And his average order is five grand, right? So this guy's buying five grand worth of products. Now he has to buy 60. So first of all, the distributor is charging him 20, 30, 40% margin just for bringing him the deal, Right. And then to actually increase his spend on those ingredients and on the production, he now has to go and acquire financing somehow. So, okay, he goes to the bank, 500,000 minimum, sir, and uh, here's 30% interest that we're going to charge you. So suddenly the deal's not profitable for him. He can't do it. Someone swoops in and they take it, right? And so that really illustrates to you like where the blockchain comes in is actually on the financing side in particular, because what we can do is leverage things like decentralized finance um, and, you know, uh, different tokenizations and things like this to ultimately provide these sellers with 15% interest rates rather than 30 or 40 and no minimums. And also for that discoverability piece, um, we kind of cut out the monopoly and basically say, look, here's 10% only that we're charging suddenly that deal becomes doable for my no alcohol beer producer from Essex. 
No, it's interesting because I remember going to a talk a couple of years ago at uh, University of Cambridge and they were talking about blockchain and they were saying, you know, there's still there's still very few instances in the industry where blockchain is the, you know, we can prove that that's the technology that we need to use. It's a pure example of how tech, of, of how blockchain rather disrupts um, a, a, a sector or a category. But here you're just using it because it gives you that ability to, to leverage into scale, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I've obviously been in the space since 2016. I've done various ventures in blockchain. And, you know, both myself and all of my peers, the way we always approached it since it was such a new technology is basically saying, okay, we have this great solution with these great properties. What problem can it solve? So Mm -hmm. almost trying to shoehorn a solution into a problem. And, you know, we made the decision here with this, you know, this marketplace for B2B discovery and financing of these ethical brands. Um, We basically made the decision to say, well, let's solve a real customer problem. We know what our competitive advantages can be because we understand this technology space quite well. We understand AI quite well. But those are just tools. Those are just the how. Like, what's the why? And so um, we tried to approach it in the opposite way. And now when you look at the value of blockchain here, well, actually, it helps establish that trust. It helps get people lower interest rates, which is what they actually need to be able to grow. It's a genuine problem that we're solving, and it's just the best tool for the job. I think it's there's, there's quite big changes obviously going on in society for obvious reasons over the last 18 months. Uh, and increasingly, I, I kind of see people moving to um, towns and villages outside of big cities where you know there's that migration going on away from say London. Um, I've got lots of friends who decided, for example, to head back to the Northeast for Newcastle originally, and they, they've gone, sod it, we're going to move back to Newcastle, we're going to move back to towns and villages in Northumberland. And it would seem to be that that people are then shopping in local shops and independent shops and, and where you've got food. I suppose there's this move towards, let's find farm shops or local producers and, and small scale stuff. With the greatest will in the world, Oatly and, and Brewdog, both brands that I buy, both brands that I like, are kind of small brands that have exploded onto to a large scale. But with with the with the way that we're moving as a society, and I suppose the the health of the world in mind, is that is that smaller, more local kind of wave of of, of tackling food and produce, perhaps a, a more sustainable model going forward. And and I suppose in that, Artos still fits in because it's still helping with the with the with the discoverability of sustainable and ethical brands, but perhaps maybe with smaller local markets. I'm not sure. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point. I mean, we try and find for the buyers, right? I mean, they work with, you know, distributors and cash and carriers and things like this. And they obviously, there is a benefit to working with those guys. You know, they have good products, good prices, good payment terms, but the products that they stock are what you find on the shelves in a lot of places. And yeah. so what our really real value add to those buyers is bringing them something different, diverse, something that caters to this consumer demand of what you're saying, which is, you know, there's a big push towards locally sourced goods. And that's really what we do. We go, we have all these brands in London, you know, guys who make their own kombucha, right. Who are just skyrocketing in growth, like people queuing up outside and the guy doesn't have enough hands to make all these kombuchas. That's the kind of thing that we want to empower. Um, To us, it's important exactly what you're saying, like support the local communities, because exactly as you say, I think 
with COVID, there's just a general push towards, well, I think we have to do things internally. I think we have to look within. I think we need more independence from all these other countries and all these other supply chains. And actually, we need to support each other within um, the UK rather than going outside. And so that's really what we're trying to um, trying to empower at Artos. In terms of the um, in terms of the choices, I suppose then that people are making, um, it's tricky, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you want to go into a supermarket and you want to be able to buy strawberries at any time of the year but if we move to uh, a kind of a situation where we're looking more inwardly well there's seasonal stuff there's stuff that at certain times of the year should be harder to get or should be more expensive because if we're flying it halfway around the world well there's a bit of a there's a bit of a cost to doing that are kind of people on board with that do you feel are, you, are we beginning to see a change in the way that people shop and, and the kind of stuff that they're looking to buy could it move towards a more seasonal kind of model that's a, it's a really interesting point. I mean, I think from what we're seeing with our buyers, you know, whether it's cafes or restaurants or even the smaller retailers, they certainly do vary their product offerings uh, seasonally, particularly because of the weather, right? I mean, you're right. It wouldn't be great to have strawberries all year round, but strawberries, Wimbledon, sitting outside, having a nice pims or whatever, you know, relaxing, like that's kind of the way, but you know, maybe in the winter providing, you know, some kind of alternative um, fruit that's perhaps more suited towards warm drinks um, is something that, you know, consumers will be okay with. I think that in terms of produce, though, um, I think it's a bit different than when you think about the brands Mm -hmm. Um, because the brands, they try and take that strawberry and they want to do something with it, you know, whether it's making a health bar or, you know, these chips of strawberries or what have you. And I think um, consumers are really starting to buy into that, these these packaged products. Maybe again, because of that health scare, because of that COVID scare or what have you, it's about getting things that aren't so perishable, that don't potentially have pesticides or an infection or what have you. Mm. I suppose I, I kind of think about the success of something like a, a, a graze kind of fits into that. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've had them on the show years and years and years ago now when they were kind of just in Richmond, but then kind of you go into any any place, anywhere, and you can find that brand now. No, exactly. And you see it like, um, I don't know if you saw in Sainsbury's, they always, even in the small local Sainsbury's, there's always this area now with all these new products. And yeah. you can really see like they make wise decisions about their real estate in those shops. Um, and if they're starting to stock these new products that people haven't seen that frequently, then you know that there's a demand for these packaged goods that are a bit different, but still as healthy as a strawberry. Yeah. Look, at the top of the uh, of the interview, we kind of discussed a little bit about your background, and it would seem to be aligned with the business. I imagine that there is some story into it that way. But how, how did you how did you come to co-found Artos? <laughs> um, so I was doing my degree in physics at Imperial College, and uh, there was a flyer. Obviously, as a student, you don't have much money. There was a flyer in the cafeteria that said, like, you know, win 300 pounds if you can predict the price of Bitcoin the best, right? And so I was doing some boring data analytics on some, uh, uh, you know, particle physics stuff. And I basically tweaked what I was doing and applied it there just to see what would happen. And I did okay. And I ended up winning the money. But when I was looking into, you know, Bitcoin, I think it was like 250 or 300 pound at the time. I'm not, I can't remember the exact price, but, you know, it was astonishing, like what it meant for the world. And so I basically left the physics route and just went 
went straight into blockchain, um, founded Aventus protocol, did ICOs, like all kinds of stuff like that. And then essentially realized it's time to find a problem where blockchain provides a competitive advantage rather than shoehorning this as a solution into whatever problem that could potentially fit. Hmm. And how did you then come to find this particular problem? And, and, and you know, you're, you're a co-founder. So how did you find that, that team that, that has enabled you to bring this product to market? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So um, Colin, who's our chief growth officer, I met him about a year ago, I think now, brought him on as a consultant, actually, because he's very knowledgeable in growth. He's had exits, all these different things. And I was like, hey, look, you know, we were doing more enterprisey things at the time. And I said, well, you know, we really need to find the right problem to solve. And he did it so systematically and he was so smart about it. And we just had an immediate connection. And so we started working together and he came on board. And really how we found this problem, you know, I'm Indian and Italian, uh, Italian from Modena, right? Which is where balsamic vinegar comes from. I have been. <laughs> oh, have you? I have. Okay, awesome. Beautiful, beautiful place. It was a particularly hot day in the middle of August. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there weren't many people about. I think I think the Italians are all wisely sheltering. Uh, yeah, no, lovely place. Yeah, no, exactly. Hopefully you went to the Ferrari Museum as well. Yeah, I did. Found it absolutely hilarious just how in love with Enzo they are. But I suppose that's understandable at the Ferrari Museum. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, I mean, it was, you know, seeing the 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 best balsamic vinegar is produced by these you know these like single guys or you know whatever like two people maybe in a house even and they ferment this thing for like 20 years and it wins the best awards all over the world right and so you already see this like artisanal value in italian food in particular and then in india all of the farmer um protests and things like this and how badly they're treated and really like it just kind of came naturally to go and search in the food industry and it was just astonishing what we found with like how unfair, basically how unfair the supply chain was to some of the people that were adding the most value, how these intermediaries were really just, you know, with all due respect to them because they're doing, they, they are adding value, right? But for the little guys, they really struggle with the kind of margins that they're being, they're being charged. Um, yeah. So there was an opportunity there, we thought. Look, I think it's fantastic. I, th I think that uh, it's something that a lot of people listening will, will be able to resonate with. Um, uh, so good luck with Artos and thank you for giving up some time to talk to me today. Thank you so much, David. So um, sustainable food brands. I Look, I, I'm not going to kind of like, let's, let's, let's steer clear of kind of blockchain and not blockchain and why blockchain because quite frankly, I don't think we can add anything extra to what Annika has already said there. Mm. Um, but how much do you care about the sustainability of the food that you buy and be honest do, do you know what it, it, it really it really depends on where i'm buying stuff and the timing and and things like that like when when you're in a rush and you're just buying a few things because you need to you know every, i mean most single guys or guys living by themselves under the age of 30 34 would be able to relate when you're just you know, finish work and you are, are kind of in Tesco on the way back from work before getting your train home. And all you're buying is stuff to make a stir fry because quite frankly, it's probably the easiest thing you can make. Um, you know, you don't really care or I, I don't really care. It's like 
bang, 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 get a few bits, bush, done. Um, but I think I think the more you kind of read into stuff and sometimes, you know, when you're in like in a supermarket on like a, a Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon and you've got a bit more time to walk around, have a look, you know, and, and you actually read things and and then you actually realize and, and, and understand and you think actually, you know, I'm doing this. So that's just in my grocery stuff. But I'll tell you one thing that I'm a little bit particular about is coffee. Um, right. I watched okay. a documentary about like, you know, coffee bean farming and, and the kind of sustainability mm-hmm. around that. This goes back all the way to when I was in school and fair trade was first a thing. Um, but there are where I live in Southeast London, there are a few independent coffee shops and that support, you know, kind of sustainable um, kind of coffee farms and all these sorts of things. And the beans that they bring from Brazil and, and South America and all those sorts of places. So I do go for that coffee as compared to you know in in my opinion that's me doing my bit i think yeah you see no i i think this is a really interesting one because big scale Mm. there are certain choices that i make right Mm. always buy free range eggs probably Mm. like most people um i won't buy uh anything other than a free range chicken Mm. but i'm not tied to particular brands yeah do i stick to seasonal foods no i don't so am I am I creating a bigger carbon footprint because um I want fruit regardless of the time of year and maybe it comes from New Zealand. I I haven't I haven't yeah. consciously made those decisions in the past and maybe I should, right? But where I think um Artos have got this right um and and will will really succeed is I do hook myself into certain brands. You in the same way that I think in tech and life and clothing, you get a thing for a brand. I think the same thing happens with food. Like I do buy Brewdog because mm. I like the brand. Mm. Mm. Um, and there's a there's a village shop here in Headcorn called Foodies that exclusively stocks produce from Kent. Mm. Um, and I love going in there and I'll buy their cured meats, which are all from from uh cattle and sheep um uh across the county um they've got your window (laughs) it's terrible my wife has now given up lamb um because she's like but they're so cute it's like well yes i've always known that they're cute but it still tastes good anyway you ran by that's uh, that's now in foodies on the counter (laughs) um but equally like coffee so there's this this brand um uh the kind of what what they call garage i i've got it in the cupboard i buy it now all the time and it's garage garage band coffee or something along those lines but it's obviously the coffee beans aren't kentish coffee beans but they are roasted in kent and it's sustainable and and i like that or i you know i i i, I drink oatly and i like the oatly brand mm. so i think what annika is trying to do is really clever because we do like brands mm. and i think that actually we there's more of a status thing about us as individuals, about the the brand choices that we make, than perhaps oh, I buy free range X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah, and and I think I think that brand awareness is is now becoming more and more, I guess, important. And it's also become a status thing. I think I totally think it's a status thing, you know and, I, I mean? and I think that might sound like a total wanker to say yeah, that, but yeah. I, I I think it's it's maybe it's uber privileged and, and I need to kind of have a think about that. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, th- but, I, th- I think it is. I, th- I think it is definitely for those that are privileged. I'll be completely honest with you because, you know, in, in, in the kind of poorer areas of the UK, whether or not you've got Oatly 
oat milk or you've got oatly oat milk which is the barista edition which kind of foams a bit more um see i don't like that one as much i, I normally buy really? the semi-skimmed but oh really <laughs> I, I i like i like the barista one anyway look at us look at this conversation <laughs> right literally there's people out there that probably haven't even got milk and they would just be happy with a blimmin filtered <laughs> carton from tesco just like your normal I'd like to point out that I grew up in a coal mining community in the East. I haven't always been this much of a... Yeah, and I'm a first generation in the UK. So, uh, yeah, so they, they, there's our thing. No, but honestly, <laughs> getting back to our point, I, I do think it's a privileged thing, but also if you can, and, and, and this is the difference, right, is use that kind of privilege or that position to actually help, you know, change and drive kind of sustainability and i think in in the interview she kind of mentioned along the kind of supply chains and actually while she was doing like the analytics around it and actually finding out that the people who were there at the bottom of the kind of supply chain or those that are you know originators for example they're not getting anything right and the ones that are making the cut are these big supermarkets uh, the logistics companies these sorts of things so if we can and have a direct way to give back then I think that's great. She also alluded to like the Indian farmer protests, which I think from my knowledge are still going on at the moment in India, mm. whereby, you know, the farmers are not getting kind of the right cut by the governments because the money is given and sent back to India, but it's just kept by the whole government. Right. And it's yeah. not being given to those. So all these lovely spices that we, we like to put in our food and when we're making our curries and foods and, yeah, these sorts of things, it's not going back to those that are actually doing it day in, day out. People like me yeah. and you, you know, we're, we're walking into a store, buying it, sometimes for extortionate money, really, um, but, you know, still buying it nevertheless. And But is, is you know, the way that people talk about gateway drugs, mm. to flip it on its head, is is it almost like gateway tech and gateway brands? Like the more that we begin to make those considered decisions about, I want to buy Oatly because of X, Y, Z. It then makes you think about the rest of your shop. Mm. It is making me consider the rest of my choices. Like, hang on a minute. I, I make these choices because I like these brands because they're sustainable and whatever else, but then I, I will still go and buy the thing with the massive carbon footprint on the other side of the planet, or I'll go and buy this without thinking about the impact on farmers. And maybe I should. Maybe mm. maybe I'm being completely conceited and contradictory by buying these brands and then not making ethical choices in other parts of my shop. Yeah, Like, yeah. It, it, it's just... Yeah. I think what she's doing is fantastic. Mm. I think it's attacking the right part of the vulnerability of what makes us a little bit vain mm. and hopefully then getting you to kind of think about things more more broadly. 100%. It's, it's, it's like buying, you know, these sustainable products and then going to the till and going, actually, I'll get I'll pay 10p for that plastic bag as well. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's like... Yeah, it's like, you oh, just shit. look like yeah. a bit of an idiot. <laughs> it's like, oh, where's my, uh, you know, recyclable tote? Oh, I've left it in the, uh, in the old boot of the car. <laughs> I shouldn't even be driving a car because it's thrown out, you know. So it just, it does make you think. It, it triggers a lot of kind of thoughts. But I think having a kind of platform whereby it's all kind of there in one piece and it helps kind of, you know, I guess people match up. What what, what example did she use? Like Tinder, if Tinder and Etsy had a baby, but it was sponsored yeah. by, was it Amazon or Google? I can't, mm. I can't, I can't, I can't um, remember the, yeah, but, but it was, yeah, yeah, so she summed up really well and it was just about having that platform, which is kind of super easy to use. It, yeah. it partners and, and, and pairs kind of, you know, communities and people together. And I, I think it's great, man. Yeah. Um, and it just goes to show that tech 
is different you know it's not always about creating a robot and creating this and you know kind of mining bitcoin and all these sorts of things um yeah it's actually helping the world and and helping the world be a better place and also i can't believe bitcoin was 250 pounds at one point one bitcoin was 250 quid oh god we've been over this yeah (laughs) Um, we won't have an advert break today, but one very quick thing uh, that came out this week. Instagram are requiring all users to enter a birth date. The move is part of the firm's efforts to introduce child-safe experience for under-18s. You know what? I think this is brilliant. Because, Bloody good. Yeah. So, so, so new users have been required to enter their birth date as part of the sign-up process since 2019, but for the first time, existing users will be prompted to give their age on, on opening the app. In the short term, dismissing the request will cause Instagram to blur posts that are marked as sensitive. However, Instagram will require, uh, eventually require users to add their birth date to continue using the app at all. The information allows us to create new safety features for young people to help sure we provide the right experiences to the right age group. Recent examples include changes made in March to prevent adults from sending messages to people under 18 who don't follow them last month we started default new accounts belonging to people under the age of 16 into um a private setting i think this is brilliant because amongst anything else um i've got a goddaughter who's 15 she's on instagram half the time and sometimes i kind of look and go oh god right okay um about some of the things that she posts on a story i i wouldn't want necessarily people at that age to also to be able to be put under the pressure of photos of of older people putting out what what basically is filtered fake photos on <clears throat> social that would probably make a fairly young vulnerable person maybe feel inadequate about themselves like yeah. when you're at that very suggest- suggestible age mm. people shouldn't be getting bombarded with those kind of images 100% 100% and i also think it's a they shouldn't be exposed to certain things by other people and and shouldn't be exposed or given access to people because I'll be honest, we love the internet, we love technology, but of course, it's full. Technology is a brilliant enabler. Yeah. But it's totally also about it, how you use it yeah. and, and, and in whose hands it is mm, it is in. Exactly. And in the wrong hands it is it is wrong. Um yeah. and it's just so good to see, you know, kind of Instagram actually doing something and holding oh, Facebook. Filters. Yeah. We're giving a bit of we're giving a bit of kudos to Facebook here. Well done. <laughs> yeah. This well is rare. Done. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's great. So yeah. hopefully that also they can do some more controls to help the, the kind of online bullying and hate and racism yeah. and these sorts of things. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this step can can go far. Um, so yeah, we're out of time. Akish, probably see you on Sunday. See you on Sunday, sir. Everyone else will be back on Tuesday. Give you the satisfaction